special training uh, to, to get up here and share this. And, and I, as if I was searching for some other reason or excuse that you, know, you got to have a special qualifications to be up here. And now there is lots of schooling and lots of studying. I know you put into this, but on th- and, and you giving me this opportunity, God says, hey, it's already, he's already told us we need to come together. We need a fellowship, spend time together. We need to spend time with God, which I've had a, this really helped me establish a stronger uh, schedule and time to spend with God and spend time with God. And he's spoken to my heart over, over this matter, but a lot of other things in my life, because not only is, have I been studying this, but it's really opened up my prayers to uh, the things I want God to grow in my life and to, and to give me understanding and his wisdom and his knowledge out of this. Uh, he's given me a lot of things on my heart. And he says, those same things that I'm putting on your heart are the things we should get together and fellowship about. All of you, all of us. You know, I want to hear from all of you. I know a lot of you already have a really dedicated prayer time and quiet time, but we shouldn't shy away from sharing what God's put on your heart with each other. Fellowship isn't just getting together and asking about how's your work, you know, how's... How's the car going? You know, it's we got to get together and tell each other about what God's doing in our lives. And and here God gave me an opportunity to stand up here and just do that. So all of a sudden I felt, okay, I don't need any special qualifications. I'm just going to stand up here and tell you what God has been doing in my life and 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 fellowship with you. And and hopefully it rings a little true with you. And maybe you you can encourage me through what God's been telling me and, and talking to me. And I can encourage you with what God's been teaching me in my life. So I had no idea how long this would take. We're on week four. Somebody told me this last week that, hey, usually people that get up and speak usually have to be taught how to get to a full 30 minutes or 45 minutes. They're usually your first time up. You spend about 10, 15 minutes and you're out. But Lawrence, you don't have that problem. We got to figure out how to get you back down to 45 minutes. And... (laughs) The truth is I spend way more time than 45 minutes with God every week and I have all these things that God puts on my heart and that, I, that, that I, I'm excited about. And I was just t- talking with my wife today. I said, ah, yeah. it seems like an hour and a half is really where I feel like I got a good talk with God in. Now, I don't have an hour and a half every day and I, 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 I don't regularly get that hour and a half, but I, I'm excited. I, could, I have a lot of things I'm praying about and, and wanting God to teach me about. So hopefully we get a little farther down the road here. I do see that we can get through this chapter. We're going to back up. Uh, we quickly ended on our last blank dealing with Romans 14.10. 14, four, uh, chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. Oh, Chris, are you about to pull that up for us, please? I wish his book would stay open just a little better for me. Uh, you know what? Maybe next time I'll take you up, but this one's also all marked up, has all my notes in it too. So. I've been coloring in this book, writing, scribbling in this book for months now. Um, Romans 14.10, as you guys all turn there. Can I get a volunteer to read that? Almost, almost, she's almost there. All right, go ahead. You go ahead, read all the way to through verse 12, please. Last several weeks, we've been talking about uh, several different things, but leading up to specifically the truths discussing in this chapter have all been about stewardship over money and the possessions that God has given us on this earth. And it very clearly states, as we think about that and, and you know, kind of grounds us, is we're going to give account for everything that God has given us. He's going to give us account for the health that he's given us. He's going to, uh, what did we do with that? He's going to give us, we're going to have to give account for the time that he's given us here. 
on this earth. And it's we the word one word before us we're talking about being that we are stewards of his blessings and that word to being good stewards and being a good steward starts by having a clear understanding of who owns where the ownership lies that God is the owner of all things and that because that ownership is with God and God is the creator and owner of all we should automatically take a different perspective on our belongings because our belongings are blessings. I'm just going to replace that word with blessings. Uh, we are the stewards' blessings was a previous blank there. But I think once we understand that we, where ownership is with God, that we are stewards of that, well, that gives us a different perspective. And the fact that God's going to return to hold us accountable for those things, I think we could start to view our stuff a little bit differently. I know that I was brought up and taught very clearly at a young age. One, my parents usually told me, don't borrow, don't take that kid's toy home. Don't Even if he offers to you, give it to you, don't take it. And I know what they're afraid of because if I took it and I broke it, their parents were going to want my parents to replace it. You know, and then there was also that respect taught that, hey, stay off that property that doesn't belong to you. That's someone else's property. They didn't give you permission to be there. Hey, and when those few times that we did have a need and somebody loaned us something and gave us something, I was very sternly guided and corrected. Hey, we treat this even better than our own things. Not only do you treat it better and you use it, but you return it probably in a better condition or better state than they loaned it to. And I know a lot of you are, would tell me the same thing. And I know a lot of you are the, have that same respect for other people's stuff. Now, it may be missing in a lot of places of the world, but... And the world in general has has their own set of moral values on other people's stuff and other people's rights. Hey, you treat you're supposed to, that's my stuff. You're supposed to treat it better. You don't have a right to do this, you know. And the world even has their own standards for that. Yet we take God's blessings and we hold them in as ours, and all of a sudden we start treating them as they're ours, and we can do what we want with them. And it doesn't matter as if we're not going to have be held accountable for those things. So, as we talk about being stewards of his blessings and being a good steward, that that's, comes along with understanding and taking on that mentality, this doesn't belong to me. God, so, that thing that God gave you, I need to be able to present it back to God even better than he gave it to me. You know, we hold it at a higher standard than our own belongings, our own personal things. If we can do that here in the world, I don't see why we can't Take that same perspective for the blessings that God gives us. So we will give an account of our stewardship. The next verse is Romans 14.10. The next verse in the book, Luke 19.12-27. Can I get one other volunteer to read, read this today? I'm doing my best. I'm a little short breath after this last week, but if I can get someone to read Luke 19.12-17. 12 through 17. Oh, 27. I'm sorry. I'm, my notes are wrong. The book is the book is right. 12 through 27, please. Now, I'll go ahead and read the lead up to this. It says, all, the, all three of these truths are seen in the parable Jesus told here. A parable is a fix, fictional story to illustrate spiritual truths. As you read the following verses, understand who the various characters and objects are in the story and who they represent. This is helpful maybe to know before we read it. The nobleman in the, in the parable is Jesus. The servants are Christians, you and me. And a pound or is amount of Roman money, at least several days' wages. Would you mind reading that? Oh, we have it right back there. Thank you. I don't think, we're in Luke chapter uh, 19, I'm sorry. Luke chapter 19, 12 through 27. I led you all astray. I got my numbers all mixed up here. Luke, I know, I wrote it different on my paper than what's in the book. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was was my misguidance. 19, 12.
Yes, please. Thank you. You read that so clearly, perfectly. Thank you. I think it's very clear in understanding in that parable, as we prefaced before, Jesus being the nobleman, the servants being the Christians, you and me, um, and the amount of blessings that he gave them while he was gone, um, that it's clear that God is going to give us stuff, and but he's also going to hold us accountable for all those things. A couple a few things, a few things that I, I found as importance to kind of take away to really sear into my mind here is that on verse, ten, I'm gonna, verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for, self, for himself a kingdom and to return. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back and he will, this is not a made up, made up story in the, in the sense that it's all fiction, but this is laying out very clearly, opening the parable with, he went into, came to this world to seek and to save the lost, but he will return, and he will return to hold us accountable. He called his servants, he called those who loved him, and, and he delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy till I came. So, very clearly right off the bat, he came and he and he gathered those of us who love him, who follow him, who proclaim him, and he gave us our blessings. He gave us many blessings. And he told us to occupy till I come. And I occupy, I had to look into that word a little more, but occupy. What does he mean by occupy? Well, we occupy a space here. We occupy here. Occupy is to reside, your place that you live, where you do business, where you do do life. Christ is not out of touch with what we have to go through here. He's given us certain blessings. He understands the trials and tribulations of not only the, the struggles with our sinful flesh, but the, the, the influences and the struggles of this world that are going to influence our lives. But he gives us these blessings and he expects us to do something with those. He wants us wherever we are. You know, praise God, you and I were born right here and we're in this country and we're very... we're. At times, we tend to be pretty proud of the country we, are, we live in. But that doesn't make us any greater than the, than the child born in South Africa. God put that child right there to occupy. And when that, when that person is, comes to Christ, and, they, and Christ, all the blessings that Christ pours out of that person, they're going to have the same accountability. I almost worry that if those of us who live in this, this 
current uh, state of our country right now and, and on our town. We, we pray regularly at our house, thankful for this safe town. I know plenty of you have seen and followed the news that's going on, and there's turmoil in this world. But my neighborhood's not being bombed. I don't go to sleep at night feeling threatened that someone might attack my home. Now we do pray for safety, and there are, there are random acts of violence and evil even in our town. But we live in a really good place, a place that shouldn't hinder us. And yet the people who might live in another country, in another state, and where there's all this persecution and violence, God's going to hold them accountable for the blessings that they gave. How much more is He going to hold us accountable? I feel like he's the, we're, we're the servants that He gave the ten to. He gave the large amount to. He said, here, I get, look at, I gave you everything. I gave you the resources, the country, the base in which to go and, and to sp- share the good news throughout the world where somebody else, another child, another maybe not so fortunate country doesn't have the resources we have. We gave them the one. They're going to be held accountable, but we're going to be held accountable even more for the, for the extra blessings. That, that was the next part that really s- stuck out to me that, you know, to the so the person with the ten, he gave ten cities. To the five, he gave five cities. He's going to, he's going. To, there's going to be different degrees of gracious rewards from Christ, based on the proportion of the measure in which He gave to us. And I don't think I look on to anybody out here right now that is really suffering. Yes, there are tough times and there are things going on in our lives that make life difficult, but. I, my mind quickly raced around the world to all of those who are maybe hiding, hiding for their life, living in fear. But they have the good news in their heart, and God told them they need to go, sp- go spread the good news. The last message, Friday night, we talked about sh- spreading the word. We know what's going to stop us, what's going to stop us and keep us. We're going to be held accountable for the resources that we have to spread the good news, to share the, the Lord's love. Another thing I saw from this passage is there are going to be citizens that hate Him, those who reject Christ. There's going to be people in this world who ultimately reject, reject Christ. They're not, going to, they're not going to accept. But when Christ does return, every knee shall bow, every, every tongue will confess. And there will be judgment for everybody. But this passage ends up, uh, really interesting here, I think worth pointing out, is when Jesus, the nobleman, returns... He didn't go straight to his enemies and start there. He went to his servants first. He went to his servants first and held them accountable. And then almost as a minor note at the end, he said, okay, bring me my enemies and slay them before me. He was more concerned with what his servants had done with all the blessings and the things that he'd given them. I do look forward to being in the full presence of God, but I'm not fully understanding how it's all going to play out. I'm pretty sure, pardon me, I don't want to be the first in line when we're standing in line to, to hold, be, give account for the things that we have. But God says He's returning and He's going to come and hold His servants accountable first. I just found that kind of interesting because usually in my life, when the most important things I want to get done, I do first. And in this parable, Jesus, the nobleman, first thing he does is hold his servants accountable. I think that gives a really strong picture and the truth that we will be held accountable for all the blessings, all the blessings that God has given us. And if we can grasp the seriousness and the severity of having to stand before God in judgment, it just got me thinking, why, why is it, at least, maybe this is not so much in your life, but why do we handle the sin of the love of money or the love of our possessions or, or the false ownership of these things in this world, why do we handle it what appears to be more lightly or different than a lot of other sins? You know, Maybe, maybe it's just me, but it's almost as if how we handle our finances and our blessings and the things that God has given us is kind of one of those things like, all right, God, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I, 
I'm doing everything else. I didn't, I didn't curse too much this week. I, I went to church at least twice. and You know, I really haven't done anything major. I'm working on that. Kind of, kind of light, lightly, like we know it's serious, we know it's real, we know it's there, but, but if someone came to you or someone came to me and they said, wanted to talk about some other sin, you know, the Bible says very clearly, sin is sin is sin. That there is no other worse sin. That if anything that we have done that goes against the things of God, it is sin. And it is ugly and unacceptable before God. So if someone were to tell, come to me and, or you and say, hey, I'm struggling with the sin of pornography or drunkenness, I feel we're really quick to jump on and say, oh, well, you know, first thing you do, you need to get cut off the Internet. You need to throw out your computer. You need to go home and dump all your bottles out. You need to cut off all your relationships with those drinking establishments you go to. And we're real quick to make a plan and make a, a, a plan of action to start cutting that sin out of our lives. But when it comes to the love of money and the ownership, the false ownership we take of our things, oh, I know, God, I know, I'll get, to, I'll get to it next week after my next paycheck. Or, or oh, oh, yeah, God, I know, I know, I, I'll get to it after, after I get some more debt paid down. Or maybe even, oh, 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 I know, I've already planned that vacation. I've already put down a deposit on the cruise. I'll start after that. But where's our action plan? Where's our action plan? What are we doing? What have we started since we started going through this chapter and discussing that this sin, this love of money and things of this world, where instead of using them for the things of Christ and, and, and using them for things that we can stand before Christ and, and proudly say, this is what we've done to grow your kingdom, what we, what's our action plan to start cutting those sin, that sin out of our life? I couldn't really think of anything right away. I mean, I did come up with a few things for me personally, but I know we can think of an action plan for those bad sins. But what about for this, this hidden heart matter of the love of the things of this world? What steps have we taken to deal with this sin? So, it's very clear. We're God is the owner. We are stewards. We will give account, and God's coming to us first for the, to hold us accountable for what we what He's given us. Looking back to the book, through this parable, we see that Christ has entrusted us with His resources, but He wants us to use them for Him. One day He will return, and He will call us to give an account of how we managed. His blessings. I don't know. All my life, I've been kind of, I've met some men who are really strong walks with God, and, and and in between, and and a lot of those men, I look back, I thought, man, a lot of people just feel like, oh, they, a lot of people are even uncomfortably around them. Oh, they're over spiritualized things. But then I started thinking, you know, these were the men who referred to all their belongings as blessings. They made sure that the words coming out of their mouth all the time were giving glory to God. And to me, a lot of times, it's well, just every little trivial thing. But no, they were making a point from their heart that everything, everything that came out of their mouth and that they owned was a blessing from God. All right, moving on to the next section of the book here. God's Word instructs us to give. God's Word instructs us to give. There are many principles all throughout God's Word regarding making wise financial decisions. We'll look at a few of these in days 3 through 4 of the devotional readings this week. I hope you guys have been hitting up the devotional readings. But in this lesson, we will focus primarily on scriptural principles regarding giving to God's work. Here it is. the part Everybody who comes to church to talk about money thinks it's going to happen. Let's talk about giving. <clears throat> We know, I know, that giving is off in this church. But that's not why I'm up here. I happen to be in a position that, and you all are in a position to see our annual budget of this church. We've seen it. We've gone over it in the business meetings. But out of curiosity, in the last couple months, I looked up and said, what is the average income? What is the average income in Fernley, Nevada? 
household income, not individual, just kind of clumped it. And there are several reports in the last two years, study, uh, government reports out tracking that. And it has really grown. The dollar amount's really grown since 2019, but I think that has a lot to do with, with the pandemic and wages being increased and different things. But it's up there. The average household income in Fernley, Nevada is $72,000, $75,000 a year. Now, I know there's some of you out there that'll say, oh, Lawrence, I wish I made $72,000 a year in our house. And, and there's probably some of us out here that said, I, don't, I couldn't survive on $72,000 a year. I, you know, you, you have much more. But the average, the average household combined income for Fernley, Nevada is $72,000 to $75,000 a year. So I did some quick math. The Bible instructs that we should be thankful and give right away over the first fruits and 10% tithe, 10%. So it took 10% of 72,000. And then I quickly looked up how many listed households are participate in this church. And it's, if we were giving, if our average income, our average household were giving 10%, our annual budget of this church would be tens of thousands of dollars more. We, the gap is very large. Tens of thousands of dollars. Different from the Fernley average. Now, we may be on the lower side in this church group. We may be the below average. But my, I was merely looking for a perspective on how, what is, what is our finances of the church reflect the heart of our our members. And just out of curiosity, I saw it was tens of thousands off from the Fernley average household income. Now, this is, again, that's as much as I'm going to talk about money because this is not a plea about money. I, my heart doesn't need your money to be any closer to God. And pastor's heart doesn't need your money to be any closer, for him to be closer to God. And God doesn't need your wallet to move his kingdom and grow his kingdom on this earth. But he is concerned with your heart and how you handle your things. And he does want to see that growth. And he does want to see our budget reflect that our hearts are growing closer to God. He does want to see that. And really, when the pastor and I sit and talk over the budget, we get excited. It's been growing. It's been growing. And we don't see it as anything. We don't. He doesn't see the names. He doesn't see anything else. We're just praising God that that means somewhere out here, our hearts are getting closer to God. Somewhere out here, we've decided our hearts have become more willing that we're going to give to God, praise God, and worship Him with the things that He's already blessed us with. And I, out of this whole chapter and this section tonight, I want to encourage you to make an action plan on how you're going to start to deal with that sin in our lives and where we take false ownership and don't rightly worship God for the blessings He gave us. We're going to come up, you know, come up with an action plan for that. Because, as back to the book here, says, God's Word instructs us to give. And praise God, God is all about laying the plan out for us and giving us a, giving us a how-to book. And He's all about us starting over, repenting, and turning back to Him and getting our lives right with God today. So He's laid us out a plan. And... We're going to jump into the next word here, but Chris, I'm, I'm going to skip because I, I feel like we need to skip here. God's word instructs us to give both through direct instruction and examples of the first century Christians. We see three specific ways to give back to God, to give to Christ. We're going to turn the page over to 227 and start with our next word, give willingly with the scripture 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 7. Can I get someone to please read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7? I think I got that right this time. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I think most of us probably quote that. We've heard that in church a lot of times. God loves a cheerful giver. But 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, According as he purposed, each person according as he purposed, what that is, is as you purpose, 
That is, that is the reference to your free will and your freedom in God as you purpose. You're going to give to God. Your, it's your consent, your willingness already to submit to God by giving Him, giving to Him, not grudgingly, which is to not do it resentfully, or of necessity, being forced to do it. Nowhere here do we, I've never, I've been coming here for quite some time, I've never heard a, a message or a word come out of anybody's mouth here that makes me feel like I am being forced to give. If anything, we want hearts closer to God, and God will take care of the rest. But God says right here that it, giving should come out of your free will, out of your consent due to your love to Christ, that you should not resent God or any the church or anyone around you. I, I have heard the opinions before. Well, I don't know why they don't fix the bathroom. I know I've given enough money to fix that. You know, I don't know why we can't get new software for the music or something because I know I've given enough money that is that is resentful. That is grudgingly. You you obviously were not that, that giving did not come from a place of willingness to worship God. Biblical well, I'll just move on here in the book. So under the under the blank, give willingly, it says, Biblical giving is not rooted in guilt, but in grace. Praise be to God. I love the word grace. It is the glad response of the heart who recognizes God's goodness and giving to us. Remember, the first thing we need to do to understand, to have a... a have our heart in the right place about God's goodness is just simply being alert to that everything around us was God's gift to us. Thus, biblical giving comes from a willing heart. I wanted I want to stop at that first line there. Biblical giving is not rooted in guilt, but in grace. Right now, I know the world is plagued with guilt. And there could be guilt in this room tonight. And if anybody were to be deal, feeling guilt or feeling that you give out of guilt? I would probably tell anybody who feels guilt about their giving or when they do give, feel guilt about that they're not giving enough, I would tell, probably advise you to stop giving. Because guilt is not of the Lord. Guilt is of the devil or self-induced. Guilt is not a platform in which anything healthy happens. Guilt is destructive. It is self-centered. It is you focusing on your sin and that I can't do better. And the enemy will feed into that and accuse you and tell you that you can't do better and look at it and just and, and just force it on you that look what you've done wrong. And that guilt leads into a depression. And we cannot have the freedom that God is offering us and the willingness if we are living with guilt, giving out of guilt. You may be thinking as we go through this, oh, I haven't been giving right, I haven't been giving right, I don't honor God the way I should. If there's guilt sneaking in on you, it's not of God. If you're feeling guilt and feeling like, I just can't do anything right, I've messed things up so much, I can't, I can't give what God wants me to give, you need to give that to God because guilt is not from Him. You can be free from guilt. Guilt is not the same as conviction. Guilt is self-produced or directly from the devil. Guilt is very much self-centered. It's exactly what the devil wants for you because it is destructive. It is not God's conviction. And if you're struggling with your money and your finances and giving to Christ, then you need to call call on Christ and ask him to give you that conviction to show you where you can where he can change you. You're not going to change you. One paycheck, one gift is not going to change your heart. God was going to change your heart so that you can experience that joy and that freedom and that liberty and that willingness where you can't wait to give. And I have experienced that. And I was so excited. I I didn't literally run. I drove home, but I recently sold the old brown truck. 
And I tried selling it once before, but it didn't move and I ended up, my catalytic converter got stolen. So I had the brown truck to go to work for another couple months. And then I got that fixed. And then I said, what am I doing with two trucks? I don't need two trucks. And I, I hate seeing it rot away here. I'll sell it to someone. Maybe, maybe God will bless it. I'll put it online for sale. I'll put it online for sale. And just like the other thing, it must've been God the next morning, a man from Northern California says, I'm driving to your place to come get your truck. And I say, well, well, that's a long ways. How about I, I drive it to Reno. I trust I'll drive it to Reno. And uh, you can test drive it around Reno. And if you like, you take it home. I'd be happy to do it. It was a farmer out of Napa, California, looking for another farm truck. Perfect, perfect location for the truck. Needed four-wheel drive, wanted to do that. And he came and he bought it. He took it for a test drive around West Reno and came back and drove it straight up on his trailer that he brought. So, yep, there you go. And he gave me a pile of cash and... My heart was literally excited to come back because I had some more to give. I had had extra. I had extra, and I was excited to give. And I'm going to be honest and confess, that was the first time I'd ever felt that. That was the first time I'd actually, I mean, I'd always knew that, you know, yep, when I get paid, this is set aside. Yep, I get paid. I have this habit. I have this I have this willingness and this wanting to honor God with what I have, but I had never been excited. And he put that cash in my hand. I'm, I'm giving this much at least. And I was excited. And I want that for you guys. And I want that for everybody. Because if we were all that excited and that was just a moment, and yes, that was just a feeling, and, and yes, feelings are not reality, but that doesn't... Uh, that doesn't mean they're not real, but uh, I, for that moment, I was excited, and it was like a Thursday, and I was just excited. I couldn't get back a Sunday to give that, to give out of that, because I felt like that was such a blessing. It was random. With less than 24 hours, I was in Reno. I had to arrange for a ride to get a ride back out of Reno. I'd sold a truck, and we paid some more bills, and my boys keep breaking bones. I got doctor bills to pay. It's, I, but God provides. God provides. Man, I'm tired of paying doctor bills. It, for, they, my oldest was born 11 years ago, and I've been paying the hospital, it seems like, ever since. But, but I want you to be excited. There is no guilt in giving. And if you're dealing with guilt, it's just going to lead to depression. It's a self-absorption of our sins and focusing on our sins and thinking that's who we are, that our sin is who we are. And a side note to that, for decades, decades, it bothers, has bothered me when I hear believers, Christians, when you sin or make a mistake or fall short, say, that's just who I am. That's just the way God made me. It's a defensive mechanism to... to Say, well, you, know, you, you just have to deal with it. You, you know, whether they said something wrong or they, they, they hurt somebody or they spoke out of line. Oh, and then, then they're confronted by it. And they say, well, that's just who I am. That's who I am. And that has upset me forever. Because as a, as a new creation, as a new believer in Christ, that is not who you are. Your sin, your lack of, your, your uh, love of money, your, your guilt that you're, you think you're dealing with, that is not who you are. I, I want to tell this people, I mean, this is for decades. I, was, I gave my life to the Lord at 12 years old. And, and even as a teenager, I, I, I saw adults do this, and it bothered me. And I, I want to say, no, I want to claim that I am not that. I am not that. And your guilt, you are not your guilt. God has made you something new. That is not how God made you. He did not put the sin in you. He has made you a new creation. Turn and have the conviction and realization that you have wronged God, yes, but he is willing and wants to start over. And that there is freedom in that. Guilt does not bring any hope of redemption where conviction is not just the acknowledgement of your sin, but the hope and the joy that there's redemption and a new path and that you can be better and that you will be better. That's exciting. That's exciting. It should be exciting. We can be raised by the power of Christ out of our guilt. I'm tired of us living in guilt and depression. 
So we haven't been giving right. So we don't give what we should. So we hoard our stuff. That's all right. Give it to God. He will convict you and he'll give you the freedom and the joy and the willingness and all this other stuff we're talking about being willing to give out of being a cheerful giver comes next. It comes next. And then once we start on that path, it just snowballs into a greater walk and greater experience with Christ. God uses conviction. He does not use guilt. He uses conviction to bring us back to him. So, give willingly. Willingly. Not in guilt, but in grace, because that, that willingness comes through God's grace, hence our next blank. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 4, if someone could be looking that up. The blank is give by grace. Give by grace. One of the most moving examples of giving in the Bible is that of the Macedonian Christians. The Apostle Paul wrote of their generous sacrifice in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, using their example to encourage others to likewise give to God's work, even when it requires sacrifice. Notice especially how it is God's grace, God's grace, not guilt, God's grace at work in a person's heart that brings them to the point of giving sacrificially. Does somebody have 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Um, did, I, did I say that right this time? I'm pulling it up here. Oh, please. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how, then a, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. Verse 2 there. How that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. How that in great and trial and affliction. And that, that sounds, those are pretty tough words, but sometimes we're all going through something tough. We all have some, some extra bills pulling at us. We all have some extra burdens on our lives that's pulling at us. And they're, they're real reasons on why we might excuse ourselves from the giving to Christ. But the example given here is that even through their trials and their afflictions, in the middle of tough times, no matter the circumstances, they continue to give. It went even a little farther there. They gave beyond what they, they even expected. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. So they're going through trials and afflictions and, and tough time and, and, and tough circumstances. And I, I'm going to assume, based on the era and, and the little bit of study of that time period, poverty was most everybody. Very few people, the elite, we're talking the extreme 1% maybe, but everybody was in extreme poverty. They weren't living in the conditions you and I are living in today. They weren't living in their individual homes on an individual lot with, with their individual retirements coming in and their individual vehicles and their individual access to everything. They had nothing. They were living large families in small huts, walled up next to another hut, lived to another family, and they were selling things on a daily basis, hoping to get enough money so they could buy food. So our afflictions aren't anywhere near their afflictions, I'm going to, to, to say here, but they cheerfully and willfully gave beyond what they what Paul even expected, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Oh, verse back in verse 2, in the trial, the reflections, the abundance of their joy. That was the second part I took away from here, is that not only did they give out of the uh, during trials and afflictions, but they did it the abundance of joy. This isn't the kind of joy you just get from being, feeling good because Paul came by and gave you a good word. Oh, that felt really good. I'll give to him. This is a joy that comes from somewhere else. This is a joy that doesn't come from guilt. This is a joy that we get when we give ourselves to God. This is a joy that we get from the grace of God. This is God's grace. 
And I thought, wow, you know, I almost feel guilty that they were like that and I'm not. How, Lord, how, Lord, can they be like that and I'm not like that? But I read a little bit farther, of course, when studying this, and I read in verse 5, if you've got verse 5 there, and this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. I was like, aha, that's it. That's what the whole Bible says. Everything, all the blessings of God, all the things of God come from when we turn and give ourselves to the Lord. We turn and give ourselves to the Lord. There it is. There's the key to all this. Paul's talking about all their great giving and during their affliction. How do they do it? How do they do it joyfully? They first gave themselves to the Lord. So giving and, the, and, and giving to your church and giving to the Lord is not about what our books say and what came in and what didn't. It's about giving yourself to the Lord. And the rest of this money stuff, we can spend less time counting the pennies and more time sitting around in a group and having business meetings, which I'm hoping to do this year. And I've told the pastor several times I'm looking forward to this. We're going to have business meetings this year. It isn't about, well, do we have enough to pay the pastor and do we have enough to buy another music thing? We're going to sit around and say, where can we give? We have so much. Where in the world can we give this? And it's not going to be because, because good job, pat yourselves on the back, you guys gave enough this year. It's going to be because God is working in our hearts and our, and, and our lives, and we're going, to, uh, we're going to be giving so much out of this abundance of joy that we're going to have places to give as a church this year. We want to give to more missionaries. Maybe one of you is going to be a missionary. We're going to send you on a mission, Bruce. Oh, we're going to have the money to support the work of God because our hearts are changed. Wow, it's not complicated. First, we must be willing to admit that we have this sin in our lives and willing to let God change our hearts. I thought, wow, we just were, we stopped that book, stopped one verse short of where I wanted to there to give us the key that first to all this, to all of this was giving yourself to the Lord. Giving yourself to the Lord. We got time for one more blank, one more blank, and that's backing up again. Give regularly. Give regularly. Now, I only want to read, we're just going to read one. If someone could look up 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Early in the Bible, God's people recognized the importance of giving a tithe, a tenth of what God had given them back, of what God had given them back to God. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Could I get someone to read that, please? So the instruction to the early Christians, Paul instructed first century Christians to give regularly and to give in proportion to God's blessings on them, in proportion to God's blessing. This is not a competition. This is not about, I gave more, you gave more, I got to keep up with somebody else. God has given to all of us individually, and he's going to hold you accountable individually for your tenth, for your fifth, for your one. He's going to hold us. So we're to give in proportion to God's blessings. And that we're not to just give whenever we feel like it, but they, they gave each Sunday as God gave to them. The first day of the week or as you may prosper. Now I'm going to finish up on that one there. Giving regularly, I think, is a pretty, pretty easy one, a simple one to come across because we already are established that, hey, we should worship not a God by coming to church regularly. We should read our Bible regularly. We should fellowship regularly. So I think the idea of giving regularly kind of falls right in with that. That's not a, not a hard concept for us to, to have to, to wrap our minds around. But as I look back, I want to give you the quick explanation of why as I, God's word instructs us to give. And the reason I went backwards through this is because I thought, wow, this sounds a lot like something else we were all taught at one point. We went in the order of we need to be willing willing to admit to God that we have a problem and, and give our give our stuff back to God and willing that God I want to honor you to, I want that joy that joy that to, to give and then by will by being willing God will give us the grace 
God will give us the grace. Only by God's grace do we have that joy. Only by God's grace do we have that change in our life. Only by God's grace do we start to give. And when we do have that in our lives, we will give regularly. I thought, wow, that sounds just like the old story of salvation. And we've all, most all of us, have already been there. First, we had to be willing to admit that we have fallen short of the things of God. We had to be willing to admit that we have sin in our lives and that we have a problem. We need to repent. And we all turned and we did it at the altar. We did it at home. We did it somewhere. And we said, God, forgive me. I am a sinner. I need you. I need your salvation in my life to change my life. There's not going to be any real change in my life till I give my life to you. And then God's grace poured in. God's grace poured in and we're saved. We're saved and sealed. Now we're saved and sealed. And God said, we're saved forever. And it kind of feels like a free pass. Like, oh, there it is. We're sealed. But God says, no, now I'm going to bless you even more. And I'm going to hold you accountable of it. And he gave us the exact same formula for how to, to do it responsibly. we got to be willing. He'll give us the grace. We'll do it regularly. I thought I'd be done in 45 minutes. I fooled myself again. I only brought two and a half pages of notes today, but instead of four, that's normally what I bring. I want to I want to finish with this. This is this. I'm done with the book here for tonight. God's word gave us all the instructions to give. I, I feel confident we're going to do it. Uh, he's given us all the instructions for the change we can have in our lives. Next week, I think we'll get to the last section of the book, but I want to I want to read one other scripture and leave us on this. Because this also came to, as I was studying the, and the struggles of guilt and, and conviction in our lives over our sin and specifically the sin of giving and how we, we hoard the, the, the stuff, the blessings that God has given us. I thought, Lord, you know, what is the cry? You've, you've mentioned it several times. What is the cry in my heart? Lord, how do I get this? How do I get this? And, and it just so happened that in, in my additional studying, I I read Psalms 51, Psalms 51, and we all know the man who wrote that. But this Psalms comes right after the prophet Nathan had came to David and said, God knows you sinned. God knows what you did with Bathsheba. God knows you have sinned greatly, and God already knows. So already tonight, let's establish it. God already knows. But David wasn't going to be conquered by guilt. He immediately had a prayer, and all, the whole Psalms of 51 is his prayer of, God, you know I've sinned. I know I've sinned, please. And I just want to read this. Psalms 51, verse 10. May this be our prayer. This has been my prayer all week. Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors the ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Please, read that this week. Make that your prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew. Renew means, those of you who are Christians already, you've been already made a new creature. But sometimes our sin kind of squelches that and beats it down. God wants you to be renewed. Pray for that. For a right, renew a right spirit. A right, I looked into that word a little bit more. What a right spirit? What's a right spirit? And I loved it. I came up with the meaning as I looked into the meaning and the translation of right spirit. It came with a constant, firm, steadfast, unwavering, resolute resolve. A new resolution, a new Attitude of being resolved for our hearts to be clean before God. You mind if I close? Let's pray tonight.